So, hi, I'm Graham uh, from Montreal. And I'm Steve from New York. And today on LSAT Pros, we're going to do a special episode focusing on the digital LSAT. So, what's changing, what's staying the same, and what you need to know about it. Steve, I hear you've been looking into this quite a bit. Yeah, I've been focused on it a lot over the past several months, looking at LSAC's updates. They keep dripping out. And yeah, more and more news all the time. There's um, a page on their website about it, along with the familiarization tool. But I'm honestly not a huge fan of it in its current iteration. What do you think about it, Graham? It's a little hard for me to say. And one of the reasons it's hard to say is that different from the paper LSAT, you can't actually easily practice for this in the same format. The digital familiarization tool is very similar, but it's not the same thing as actually sitting down with one of the tablets uh, that you'll have on test day. Um, so that's part of it. And I also just haven't, you know, done a bunch of prep tests that way. Uh, so I'm not yet, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, you can't do a bunch of prep tests that way because they don't exist in that format. LSAC yeah, has given us... A a couple of problems of each type. There's games, reasoning, reading comp. If you go to familiar.lsac.org, you can play around with the interface a bit. They recommend doing it on a tablet rather than a computer, of course, because they want to mimic the actual experience. But there's nearly 100 released exams at this point, and you can only do like maybe, what, six questions in the digital style. It seems like there's a bit of a disconnect. And of course, more exams will be released in the digital format in the future, but we're already at the point where we're like four months before the July exam. That's a good point. I'm hoping they will release some sort of thing where you can buy or use these exams digitally because I, I looked at their materials that they suggest using and they say one, the digital practice tool, which is like one test or so, uh, the Khan Academy, which is on a screen, but it's not the same format as a digital testing tool, I don't think. Um, and then three, they recommend like their books and eBooks, which, you know, it's just, it's a Kindle book. You're not like marking up the Kindle book to do the test in this way. No, they're recommending what they have available at the moment. And yeah. it would be a, a, it would be pie in the sky dream for me if LSAC were to release, let's say a month from now, they released every single exam in an interactive digital format. That's like the best thing I could possibly hope for, but I remember back when I used to license LSAT exams as, as PDFs, the, what they provided me with was not nothing even close to that. They were not OCR'd, meaning that they had not conducted optical character recognition on the prep test they scanned in. So a lot of them actually contained typos and mistakes, and some of them were just like photographs of each page one by one. So I think they're a long way from having everything text-based that they can input into a new program. I don't, I don't see it happening. Yeah. Um, so I guess one thing we'll be talking about in this episode is what you can do to prepare, given that you're mostly going to be using paper tools, but the format is changing. Um, but let, let's talk about the changes. First of all, what's going to happen for people in July? Yeah, so in July, half of test takers will be assigned the digital format. Half will be assigned the paper and pencil format. LSAC chooses for you, they assign you one or the other, and you don't get any advance notice. So for the July LSAT, you want to be ready for anything. Mm -hmm. that's, the biggest, that's the biggest thing I could say about it. I would encourage people to either go for June or September if possible to at least remove the ambiguity about which one you're going to get. But there is a benefit to the July LSAT, which is that you can see your score before you decide whether to cancel, which is a one-time opportunity. Yeah. And I would note that this is like a pretty limited benefit in that the standard advice on cancellation is don't do it because schools just look at your highest score. So it's what matters for them in their uh, rankings on U.S. News and World Report. So they don't really care if you have like a 143 and then a 173. Um, the 173 is what they put in the ranking things and it doesn't really matter. So the general advice is like never to cancel. So uh I don't think being able to cancel is like much of a benefit for the July test. Yeah, agreed. I think people love the option to cancel and people always want to cancel because they're embarrassed to have a low score on record, but you don't always know how it's going to turn out. And because law schools aren't averaging multiple LSAT scores anymore, they have not been doing that for over 12 years now. There's really very little reason to ever cancel. 
Yeah. One thing I noticed... Um, sorry, go ahead, Graham. Oh, I, I was just going to say that while you're listening to this, an important thing to keep in mind is, you know, like we're talking about this because it's like a new thing, but it's important not to sort of overrate the changes that are happening as well. As in, if, you know, July was the best time for you in terms of like your personal life schedule, then by all means, take it. Like people have already taken digital LSATs before. They've done like pilots over the past year or so. Uh, feedback was like generally positive And well, you definitely will have more certainty before or after. And like, I think that's a good thing to go for. Um, if like July is what best suited you, then I would optimize for like what lets you study best because that's fundamentally the thing that matters is how good you are at the LSAT rather than the specific format. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, Graham. I think that we're, we're obsessing over these details just because this is what we do. But at the end of the day, what's going to matter much more than the, the medium is just going to be your knowledge of the content. That'll be the biggest difference and that the biggest impact have the biggest impact. And that's also really the only thing you can control is your understanding of this. The format's going to be whatever it is. I was um, browsing the, uh, on LSAC's site recently, and I noticed one thing stood out to me that I hadn't noticed before, which is that the July LSAT, the score release date is not yet set, which is unique. Normally, it comes out just about three weeks later, and they publish the date on their website, and you'll know in recent years, they've decided to actually release on the day of. But right now, we don't know what the day, they don't, they decide, they, excuse me, they decide, they've decided to release on it on the day they say they're going to, which is nice. But for this test administration, they're actually giving themselves a bit more wiggle room. I just noticed it on their site. They're saying that they want to allow sufficient time to properly evaluate the results of the digital LSAT in terms of how those half of test takers who are doing paper and pencil, what their outcome is versus the digital LSAT takers. And so they're going to try and do some kind of controlled study to see what the impact is going to be of the digital format. But you might get a, you might have a bit more of a delay than you're normally accustomed to. That's interesting. Do you think they would do anything if it turned out one group had like a higher or lower score in a marked way? Yeah, it's, it's funny because... The digital format, the first time they're offering it widespread like this to half of all test takers, I, I imagine that the people who get digital might have a slightly lower score. I'm guessing that their scores will be at least three points lower on average just because the students doing the digital one won't have quite as much familiarity. That's my expectation. We'll see True. what happens. Though there is one other factor to consider, that when you're doing the paper LSAT, you have to actually mark your answers on the answer sheet separate from your page. Whereas in the digital one, you just mark it and move on. And Yeah, you're right. I've, the clicking is slightly faster. Yeah, and I've, I've timed how long it takes. It's like two to three minutes to fill in all the bubbles, which is 10% of section time almost. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. That could counteract it potentially. Well, I guess, I guess we'll see. I'd love to take a full digital LSAT myself just to walk through the process and see what it would be like, but they don't have one up yet. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I should probably try a section and uh, it's too small a sample just to take one, but it'd be interesting to like organize a group of people and try one, try the other. I, I mean, I guess that's LSEC's job in in July and we can just focus on, on uh, talking about it. But <laughs> uh, Yeah, yeah. This is their controlled study, but it's funny because they're saying it's a best practice to give half of test takers one and give the other half the other and then see what the results are. And they're saying... And I noticed this just now that they said on their website that presumptively everyone will have digital in September and going forward. Presumptively. Mm. So they're kind of, they're giving themselves a little bit of wiggle room there, I think, where they're saying if things go terribly wrong in July, maybe they wouldn't go forward with the digital full force in September. I don't know. I think it's unlikely just because they've been revving themselves up for this. But it's, it's interesting to think about what would happen if the scores from the digital test takers were lower because LSAC is so focused on statistics and doing everything properly. They really look to optimize the questions and the difficulty ratings and all that. So I do think they're taking this seriously given that they've been working on it for so long. Mm -hmm. And two thoughts just came to mind about comparisons and why it's randomized and why also they have to make sure that there's no difference between paper and digital. Because you might think on the one hand, like, well, if everyone's digital, like, well, why does it matter if one's easier than the other? And the second thing you might think is like, well, why is it random? Why can't I choose what I want in July? 
Um, for the second question for why you can't choose what you want, it's because there might be a meaningful difference between the kind of person that chooses digital versus sticks with conservative paper. I don't know which way it would go if like which group is higher or lower scoring, but I could see there being, you know, it's not a random sample anymore. So that's why they're randomizing you. And the reason that uh, it has to be found to be like not different is because people taking it in September all digital will be compared against people from like June who are all paper. And if one format was found to be easier than the other, um, then that would give a group an advantage in admissions that wasn't due to like intrinsic skill. Exactly. And that's what I think is the biggest issue of all is that LSAT scores are good for five years. They're on your record for five years. Some schools want them more recent, like within the past three years or so. But no matter what, you're going to have some people applying with paper and pencil LSAT scores in the same pool as those with digital scores. There's no way to separate it out, right? There's always going to be some mixing of those groups. And so it's good that LSAC is doing this study, but I would like for them to actually consider the results of the study in their future actions rather than just saying, okay, we did a study and it showed whatever the result is, we're moving forward regardless. So I'm hoping that they will improve the digital format over time. One of the biggest you know, gripes I have with it is that you can't draw freehand on the screen, which is, I think, one of the biggest benefits of, of having a tablet and using a tablet is having the ability to draw with the stylus rather than just using it more like a, an app on your phone. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I have an iPad Pro, so I've had, like, PDFs of LSATs, and I've, I've taken, like, them before just with a PDF where you can do markup, and it was wonderful, where you could just write everything, mark your answers on it, but, you yeah, you can't do that. Um, so. so that's something you'll have to get used to. If you're, if you're prepping for digital LSAT, you're going to want to get used to doing no writing on the, on the question and using strap paper on the side. Yeah, which which I should add is the exact opposite of everything we've been telling you for years. <laughs> for years, people have been using scrap paper and we're like, no, no, you fool. Don't use the scrap paper right beside the question. It'll be more efficient. And now, ugh. well, <laughs> don't listen to past me. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's one of the, yeah, and that's one of the reasons I, I've been thinking so much about this is that you, everyone's, most people are studying out of books of old exams. You've got all these great books of exams on Amazon for like 20 bucks each, the books of 10. And people are used to writing in them. And that's not something you want to do going forward. Do you have any thoughts on how to best use the scrap paper in like an efficient way? Um, and and I, sorry, I should say in order to replicate the same advantages you would get from like writing near the questions on uh, print paper. That's a great question. I, I think that one thing I would want to get used to doing is... Let's say you're making notes for a particular question. Let's say you make notes for questions one through 10. Like you're always writing notes, hypothetically. I would say you want to have a consistent way of going about it where let's say you do it in order from left to right or from top to bottom on the page. But I think consistency is really important. So I would look to say, okay, well, question one's work should be in the upper left corner of the page. Question two's work should be slightly to the right of that and so on. Or maybe for games, you want to draw the page into, you want to draw, divide the page into four quadrants and have a different quadrant for each game or each question. Mm -hmm. I agree with that, that just like you should have a method in how you make, say, logic games diagrams on the paper L set, you should have a method in how you make your notes on the print, uh, on the scrap paper for the digital. And uh, also one thing I do when I've done like scrap paper in the past, because like sometimes I just don't mark out my books and I write on scrap paper. I would usually practice making like, you know, draw 23 and then quickly draw A, B, C, D, E, and then cross those out on the paper. That's that's less necessary now that you can cross it out like on the page. But say you were doing a logic game um, where you had the diagram beside that on the scrap paper, it might make sense to have the letters there and then cross them out. Um, or even like to be able to copy down like a relevant part of E and B if those are your last two answers and you're looking at a diagram that you've made, um, it's, it's too soon to like say exactly how I'll do this. Cause I haven't, um, really practiced it yet, but basically be thinking about this as you're practicing, like how can I get efficiency out of what I'm doing, um, in the same way that I did on the paper L set. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. I definitely, I've also always liked to, write down a b c d e and cross things off when i wanted to keep my book clean so i could see the benefit of doing the same 
with the scrap paper on the digital LSAT, but the problem is that it takes time. And so I would want anyone trying this out to practice that and see exactly how long does it take because that could counteract the benefit of not having to bubble, for example, yeah. in terms of how time gets divvied up. Yeah, like I don't foresee doing this on every question. I foresee doing it on the harder questions. Um, yeah. One thing for- I will say that I, I, one thing I do like about the digital LSAT, though, is that when you cross off a choice on the program, it automatically kind of dims that choice so that you're not as drawn to it in the future. I think it's really cool to help you focus on what you want to focus on. Oh, yeah, that's a very nice touch. Yeah, I so I think that, that was cool. That, that, I, I don't want to totally be all negative on it. I do think that's actually a, a, bit, of a bit of a benefit there. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, watches and will this kill the LSAT watch industry that there is a countdown <laughs> clock on the on the app. And I, I was looking it up and I saw, saw that they will still let you bring an analog watch. I'm not sure why you would necessarily want it. But one idea that comes to mind is that this countdown clock, you I, I would find it stress inducing. I, I wouldn't want it. And so it's nice they actually let you remove the countdown clock. So you could, if you're like me, remove the countdown clock and then look at your analog watch instead as an alternate time mechanism if you find it less stressful. But the downside of the countdown clock is that once you hit the five minute warning, you can no longer remove the countdown clock. It just stays there with you. And so I'm reminded of all these sketchy websites that try to pressure you to buy now before the opportunity is gone forever. And so I'm hoping that's one change they'll make to it. Yeah, that you'd be able to remove that even in the last five minutes, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it could induce like panic um, because uh, it's going to be way more present in a way that your old analog watch wasn't because you can actually just literally watch the seconds. And if you're feeling sort of panicked and in fight or flight mode, then that can really make it uh, worse. So yeah, I, I also hope they'll let you remove that. Here's a question. What if you could like cover up part of the screen with your scrap paper? Like if you wanted to... <laughs> cover up the countdown clock could you like take a piece of your scrap paper and like you can't some some proctors let you bring gum could you like attach paper with gum to like cover up the (laughs) countdown clock they they might object to uh putting gum on their their expensive hardware (laughs) Uh, yeah that's true it would definitely make a problem for the next person using it i mean this raises new questions too we have to put like a damage deposit when you sign up for the lsat in case you like spill water all over their tablet or if you drop it or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd imagine it's kind of like at, at the airport. You ever see in like airport waiting areas, they have like the iPads that are like locked down to the to the kiosk. Yeah. It could be something like that. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how they do that because it's not like they have permanent testing facilities. They, um, they just do these like in schools with like widely varying spots. Yeah, well, I guess if you don't return your tablet, they're going to know who you are. Like I assume they have some way to check each person, right? Yeah, I just mean in terms of like avoiding accidents because, you know, when you've got how many people take the LSAT every year? I mean, there's like ten, tens of tens of thousands, like, yeah. like 30, 40,000. There's going to be some screw ups where yeah. like somebody listening to this will then be the unlucky person who like shatters the iPad during the, the, the LSAT. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're automatic 120 for that person, yeah. right? Like you don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah like you don't get into law school and you got to pay $1,500 or something. Like. That's a good question. Yeah, well, well, LSAC can certainly afford to replace these. And with their partnership with Microsoft, I'm sure they got a, a bulk discount of some kind. But yeah, but yeah, I do wonder. I do wonder seriously though if there's a way to like cover up part of the screen if you don't want that countdown clock because I could see that being a major issue for a lot of people. Myself, yeah. I, I at least want to cover it up with my finger. Yeah, I mean, maybe a very low tech solution would be if they just gave you like a little thing of post it notes. Yeah. Um, I have ones at my desk that are about like half an inch tall and an inch wide and the adhesive doesn't leave like a mark. So that they cost like 50 cents or less each. So they could either allow you to bring some or, well, no, they couldn't let you bring some cause you might, I don't know, on the 30th note in write some There's a cheating, cheating, right? Yeah. But yeah, but they could give you like a few post-it notes if, or upon request, they could see if anyone wants them. Uh, I don't know. They, they'd have to think of some way to do that without like terribly slowing down the uh the process but that could be a good way Uh, yeah i wonder also just not to harp on this too much but i think this is actually something that people might want to do what if you could bring like a tiny piece of like double-sided adhesive tape 
it's not on the list of permitted items, of course. This is like a totally random new thing I'm just thinking up right now. But what if you could take some sort of piece of tape and then tape on a piece of scrap paper or they're not giving you a post. If they were giving you a post, you could use that alternatively. But I don't want us to count on LSAC to make this change because I doubt they're going to. So I'm wondering if there's a way that's still within the rules that you could cover up something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I was I was thinking through the stuff that I let you bring, but there's nothing really that, uh, you know. But then there's these gray area things, right? Like nicotine gum. I emailed yeah. them and asked about it, and you know, they, they've given me responses on random things like that, like coffee. They're like, coffee, if it's in like a plastic 20-ounce bottle or something like that, as if you're going to put coffee in there. But some of these things, they, they vary based on the proctor, and it's up to the proctor's discretion. So I wonder if you could get by with that. Yeah. Of course, we should talk about why it's in there too. Like the reason it turns on is because if you miss the five minute warning, they want you to know like, hey, hey, something's going on. Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. We should get into that. So at that point, like five minute warning is definitely a good time to just check in with yourself in terms of maybe going back to questions you flagged. Yeah. Speaking of which, you can, uh, how does the, the going back for flagging work on the new software? Yeah, it's it's. I don't know exactly how it works to go back to a question you flagged. If you could, I think I think there's a way to like click and hop back to it within within the test, which is cool. You can obviously re re return back to these questions, and when you flag a question, there's a little little black mark that shows up at at the bottom of the screen along with all the questions. So if, let's say you get to the end of the section, you flag question five, you can go back to question five and see that it was flagged. Yeah, and I think I'm you can click back to it right away. I'm gonna try that on my iPad. Oh, I've got five minutes remaining. Oh no! I've only got. Oh, it, yeah, it goes oh, no. right. <laughs> this actually, you know, this is making it like sort of unable to uh, do this flagging thing. Uh, screen brightness, because like I've I've got plenty of time, but oh, I don't know how to get out of the screen brightness menu. I'm just gonna run out of else time here. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing, right? These these are things to practice definitely before test day. Yeah. <laughs> highly recommend <laughs> looking at the interface because I just succumbed to time pressure and uh, failed to do anything. There. Extremely important. Yeah, well, that's that's a good thing to work out in advance, of course. And that's one reason I'm actually recommending that people get some sort of tablet to practice with. doesn't have to be the Microsoft Surface Go, but even like a Samsung Galaxy tablet, I think, would be useful. I think I think it's worth it, especially once people start coming out with digital LSATs using the real prep tests. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. I was checking like a Samsung Galaxy tablet's like a, maybe like two, $300, which you know, is obviously not something you want to take on as an expense, but hey, you could also potentially use it for law school and in life. And it's, it's a drop in the bucket if it gets you even one more point, it's well worth it. Yeah, this, this is going to be a question to answer um, because, you know, LSAT prep's already expensive. If you get, like, a material advantage from having, like, a nice tablet to do it with, that's something that LSAC's going to have to address in some way by making, like, I don't know, testing software that works on, works well on other devices. I don't know, it's, it's, it's a hard question. Um, but they're going to have to think about this in some way. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely something I've thought about, like recommending that someone spend hundreds of dollars on a device. And then on top of that, you also are investing in resources for LSAT prep. So it definitely has an equity issue surrounding it. I wonder about if they were to make like make a very mobile friendly practice method where like, let's say the the digital LSAT, you can do it, you can do practice tests on your phone in and with the size of some smartphones these days, they're practically the size of tablets. I think that could be a decent solution. I was actually talking with someone earlier today who told me that she hadn't used any books for her LSAT prep. Like she used zero books. She only used like the Khan Academy and that was it. Hmm. And I told her like, well, there's nearly a hundred released exams and you have not exposed yourself to any of them because you haven't been using any books. Like you definitely want to use some books, but... I wonder how many students are prepping without books at all and they're using their phone as their primary device. Very plausible. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I don't know if LSAC has the technical wherewithal to make like a good Android and iPhone app to do this, but 
that would definitely be helpful if they could make one that's not the same as their tablet thing, but broadly similar that people could practice with. Well, hey, if they partner with Microsoft, they could do it on a Windows phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are uh, sadly no longer of this world. Or no, they're old. gone. They're gone for good. Well, they're not. Uh, they still get updates, but they're not making any new ones. It's it's out. Yeah, well, I think from analytics, we were looking one time, and it was like 1% of people were on that. Yeah. All right. What else do we have? Uh, so as far as we can tell, there aren't any differences in what you can bring to the test center. Just in case you were wondering. Um, anything else? Oh, the writing well, the, sample. The writing, the writing sample, sample yeah. is one big difference. So what, how it works currently is that you take a writing sample at the end of every test. And generally, the, the writing sample is considered not to matter very much because to understand it properly, uh, schools would have to like read the prompt, think about it, and then read your terrible handwriting. And they've got so much to do when considering an application that like it isn't really that important. And mainly, it just serves to show like that you i don't know they know it's you so like if your personal statement was amazing and your writing sample is crap then maybe they think like oh well they didn't write their personal statement themselves this is just my own speculation on from the past but with this new digital format uh it'll actually be legible so will this change anything yes it's a good question i think that because it'll be more legible given that it'll be typed it's certainly easier for law school admissions people to look at it I've talked to a few admissions people about this, and what I heard is that previously they never really read the writing sample. They didn't look at it unless there was a question about something like English fluency, for example. But now that it's legible and typed, I think they might be slightly more likely to look at it. But again, because it's not scored, I don't think it's going to have a major impact. One cool thing, though, is that you'll be able to start, this is starting with the June LSAT. It'll be digital, meaning that you can do it from home on your computer, they'll monitor you with a webcam and I think a microphone also to make sure it's really you who's doing it and you'll hold up like a photo, you'll hold up your government ID to the camera just to show them that it is in fact you doing it. But again, because it's not scored, I don't think it's gonna have much of an impact. But you could do it any, I think you could do it for up to one year after your registered LSAT test date. So <laughs> you could do it the next day, the next week and because you're fresh and you won't be totally zonked out after doing five LSAT sections, it might have slightly more validity as well. Yeah. And I should also note that you only have to take it once. Right now, every LSAT you take, you have to do a new writing sample. So admissions officers could review like five writing samples from you if you've taken the LSAT that many times. Uh, not that they would, but now you don't have to do it more than once. So it shortens your LSAT test day and it just reduces the amount of time you have to spend thinking about the writing sample. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Also, I I did I did see something on LSAC side that you can pay to do extra writing samples if you want. Like for every test administration, you could pay them another. I think it was like fifteen dollars or something if you want to do a second one. And it's kind of funny to think about because what exactly are you paying for? They're not doing anything. Like they're you're basically paying them to let you upload a dot like a, a text file of what you wrote down and then forward it to law schools. You're paying someone to look at you on a webcam and look at your ID and then stare at you for half an hour or so while you take the writing sample. That That's what your fee is for. Yeah, that's human, a good point. Expensive, expensive human labor. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I wonder, though, that, that brings me to a funny question. Though. Like, are they actually watch? They're not actually watching you in real time, are they? Like, I guess I would imagine they have a, record, a video recording of you for those 35 minutes that they can look at if they ever want to. Yeah, I, I hope that's what happens. <laughs> Otherwise, there's like one guy who's got to be there while like 40,000 people do their writing samples. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what you're paying for. I don't know who would pay to take a writing sample, but I guess you know, maybe if you just, I don't know, totally flubbed it or you look at your writing sample after and you realize it's like full of typos and you're like, oh dear, <laughs> I better do this. Yeah. Thing. I wonder if there's a spell check feature on it. I don't know, that's a good question. Because like, I've got to imagine, like I still don't think it's going to be important, but I think if someone's on the fence it's going to be a lot easier to just skim your writing sample than it was in the past. And humans being humans, if there's just something like stupid in there, then if someone was like, well, should I admit them or not admit them? Then I'd be like, eh. Or if it was like really amazing, they're like, oh, pretty good. Again, yeah. only if you've already got the right LSAT, the right GPA, and your softs are good and you're just like 
borderline. That's the only time this would come up. Yeah, true. But again, that there's that question of English fluency. I mean, obviously, it's so easy to have someone else help you with your personal statement, but the writing sample, it's the only unfiltered writing they're going to see that's directly from you. So in some of those edge cases, I agree, they could look at it. And then it brings me back to like back when I used to teach the SAT and it's like the SAT2 writing, the writing se- the writing section there, there were certain trends that people noticed when they were analyzing essays, like longer essays are reviewed better or essays with paragraph breaks or essays including statistics, even if they're made up. I'm sure you've come across similar, Graham, right? Yeah, or like in the official SAT guide, they actually had like one essay noting like its use of advanced vocabulary, but like there was like a word he was using wrong. They, but they specifically <laughs> cited like a, a big long word that he used. It's like, look at this advanced word. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's impressive to use big words and it's impressive to include stats and facts and figures even, even if they're made up. And while you don't want to do that in your personal statement and you don't necessarily want to do it in your writing sample either, yeah. I do think that if you're looking to like create a good writing sample that adcoms can quickly skim, you'd want to include paragraph breaks and make it longer rather than shorter. It includes some of those bigger words yeah. for when they're skimming. Yeah, of course. No, one thing I should note, though, on the SAT, like that was actually scored. And the reason that those things were rewarded for is because their scoring scale specifically rewarded that kind of stuff. Whereas like an adcom looking at your thing is more just like a human thinking, like, what do I think of this? So, like, when I was grading some SAT essays, I could look at one and I'm like, well, this is, like, stupid, but it's better than this other essay that's also stupid because it has, like, a few criteria in here. But, like, I wasn't actually more impressed as a human by, like, essay one versus essay two. That's a good point. Yeah, it is, it is a human process. They're not, it's not being scored. And so it's just whatever you think will give them a good impression of you. Yeah, but I do I do agree that paragraph breaks are one of those things that are universally appreciated by readers and <laughs> or not. Um, yeah, I take take pity on your readers and include some. And don't use all caps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what else? Uh, oh yeah. So did we talk about the score release yet? Well, we talked a bit about the fact that July is going to have a potentially have a bit of a delayed score release because they're going to be analyzing their controlled study. But yeah, yeah oh, we can right. talk I guess about... I... Shoot. I guess the only thing is like that you have five days to cancel, um, but we already talked about cancellation. So that's like the one difference from normal times where like now you've got to cancel like at the test center or a bit after the test before you see it, but you'll have like five days well knowing your score. Um but I, that, I guess it's not very significant. We already talked about canceling. What about you? You were mentioning something, Graham, that you were looking at the the familiarization tool on the computer versus the iPad, and you noticed a bit of a difference, right? Oh yeah, I just I found it a bit hard to to highlight. I thought it was initially thought it was like an issue with my computer system, but now I think I just maybe wasn't doing it properly with my mouse. Because um, I know on a tablet, like if I was trying to erase a highlight, I couldn't just touch it. I had to kind of like swipe diagonally in a certain way. And then it would go away. So basically, if the thing seems broken, try a different browser um, or try a different device. Like, you know, go from your computer to your phone or vice versa and turn off an ad blocker maybe. Or just there's basically when you take the LSAT in the test center, it'll be on a Microsoft Surface tablet that's like calibrated and set up and tested to be the way it's supposed to be. But your computer is not that. And so it's very possible that like if something seems wrong like a it's like specifically your device settings or b like me you just haven't like figured out the specific way you're supposed to press to make a highlight appear or disappear well that's a really good point graham i'm glad you brought it up because i can imagine people getting frustrated trying it on one device and it's not working properly and not I think like anything else that's on the com- on the computer or digital in general, your things take some getting used to, getting your flow in terms of how you go about things, or even just the certain style in which you swipe. Like swiping, you said something about like like a downward slice yeah, to do the highlighting, like, that sort of thing. From like top right to lower left, seem to do it. Yeah, so that's something you got to get used to, and that's that is apart from the content, and so something to play with. I did notice that it worked okay on uh, on an iPhone. And it also, for me, did work okay on a computer. But yeah, definitely, if you're just using the computer, try multiple browsers and make sure everything's updated as always. Yeah. And ad blockers Bet- and other extensions can have an impact too sometimes. 
yeah, the best tech support advice I can give you when like something isn't working online is try another browser or try the browser in incognito mode. One of those two things like usually solves the issue. Um, meaning it wasn't it wasn't the site; it was like something local. Uh, it but they do say on their guidelines to emulate the digital LSAT testing experience, use a touchscreen tablet to reference press and tryout sections. But based on what we've found, like that doesn't seem to matter that much because like it works for Steve on a computer and a phone. So I guess if things don't seem to be working, don't think you need a tablet necessarily. Just fiddle around and try try it a different way first. Yeah, definitely. I'd say getting a tablet is something to consider later if you decide to make the investment and it's not working for you elsewhere. Okay, do we have anything else to talk about as far as the digital LSAT goes? For the digital LSAT, um, nothing. In, I think we I think we covered the big things. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess we'll see what happens. It's still unfolding and still in the works. I, mean, I am I remain curious about what will happen for September if they'll make any modifications based on how July goes. Mm-hmm. One uh, comment I can make just related to that is that, of course, September is still perfectly fine to apply this cycle if you're concerned about the ambiguity of July. I'd say you could take it in September and still apply very early in the cycle. And so I wouldn't consider the timeline. I consider more about just where you're at personally. Yeah, up until recent years, there wasn't even a July LSAT. So. Yeah, true. Um, in fact, how many test dates are they going to have now with the digital LSAT? Is it nine, I think? They're having nine for the 2019-2020 cycle, I think, which which starts the fall 2019 through like summer 2020. But then I think going forward beyond that, it might even be 10. So wow. nine or 10 times a year. And this brings change. me to, it's, it is, and that brings me to this, this topic I know we've been, both been thinking about, which is LSAC's reuse of LSAT test forms. They're still only mm-hmm. releasing three a year, and they're reusing a lot of test forms from previously undisclosed administrations. Yeah. And so, I, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, they're, they're only producing, it seems they're only producing three new exams a year at a cost of $750,000 per test administration. But I wonder, how, how does the math really work out on that? Over time, they're going to be reusing these exams so much. Well, I don't think that quite follows. It means they're publicly releasing three per year. But since they're having more tests, they might be producing more new ones. Like they might be making five new ones per year and putting those into reuse. Because um, once you publicly release one, you can't reuse it but they may have more than three released ones. I mean, they always have at least... The February was always new, right? Right, so they... they was, the, was the February always new? That is a good question. I think the February was always new, and then they would reuse it for, like, overseas or Sabbath or inclement weather or something like that. And I, I misspoke, of yeah. course. They're not only producing three a year. They're producing more like four a year perhaps at least mm-hmm. because there were there used to be four test administrations per year but i'm wondering how many times they'll end up actually reusing a given test form i don't know my my theory here i have zero inside information uh i guess the only thing i've heard is that lsac is you know sort of scrambling a little because obviously they've had a big change and my suspicion here is that it's hard to produce a certain number of LSAT questions and you can't just, you know, if it costs you 150 or 750,000 a year, and let's say you want to produce double the number of tests, you can't just give them 1.5 million a year and get double the number of tests. Like uh, a lot of stuff, you know, if you want three iPhones and you just get the money for three iPhones and you can buy three iPhones instead of one, it's simple. But for some things in life, you can't just throw more money at them and get more of the same result and i think that's probably what's happening with lsac and so it may take them some time to scale up to a higher level of production but i've got to imagine behind the scenes that they are working on getting a higher level of new test output it's just not something they can just instantly do or even necessarily do over like two or three years because like it's a highly intricate process but i'm guessing that's go ahead I was just going to say, I'm guessing they don't want to repeat stuff endlessly. I'm hoping that it's just like a stopgap thing where they're like, okay, we want to make more tests. We've got this impending threat from the GRE. We've got to show we can make more tests. 
how much can we stretch our like our current test amounts until we ramp up our production capabilities that's a really good point that that strikes me as being correct that maybe they need a couple of years in order to fully ramp things up and think about reimagine an increased production schedule because yeah if they're doing going to do 9 or 10 exams a year and get a lot more fresh content that means they need to go to all their item writers and get them producing more questions and they have to test out these questions on experimental sections and do their own internal analytics to see how things work out but yeah it's a tremendous amount of work to even do these previous four exam administrations per year and they take this very seriously i think they conduct even more rigorous analysis of their questions than any other test makers out there for other exams like the GRE. I think they hold themselves to a higher standard. And being a perfectionist and producing a lot at the same time is a very tough thing to achieve. Yeah. Because it may well have an internal structure, you know, like one person that does some key role and that person may be just working full time. And then to do more of that, you either have to work them overtime or get a second person. But if you get a second person, then you have like communication overhead um, and you can't just scale up that way necessarily. Like it might cost more than double the money um, and you have run into quality risks if you don't create like some process that uh, can handle a higher number of people working on a thing. Yeah, true. And there's also this additional revenue portion to consider. I mean, I've looked at LSAC's financials before and I've seen that they ha- they are sitting on a lot of cash but that's not sitting on cash is not the same as having like the the rev as the revenue that they're generating each year. I mean, they charge a lot in fees, of course, but to add on another couple million dollars a year in expenses to produce new test forms when they're not really getting much back on that in terms of profit necessarily. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that they are in a they are in a tricky position and producing new test forms for them is not nearly as easy as it is for the GRE, which can just insert new numbers for math problems, for example. That's a really good point because it means that for it to work at all, they would need people to repeat the LSAT more times than they did in the past. And I think people are. I think that's one thing that occurred to me is that let's say they offer it nine, 10 times a year. Maybe the average person was taking it two or three times. Now they'll up that to maybe three or four times but the differential of like a, they get another $200 per test administration for even even if you got another 10,000 test administrations at at 100 200 bucks each i don't think it would make up for all the new test forms they're creating yeah yeah so they may well still end up like with a certain level of repetition that's higher than in the past yeah. even once they've dealt with the scaling issue just like the cost issue as you say may not allow them to uh, to just have a whole bunch of new stuff. Yeah. As much as people talk about the reuse of the exam forms, though, I actually don't think it's that big a deal because no one is making an entire database of all the previously administered but unreleased questions. That isn't being done. I don't think it could easily be done just because of the complexity of LSAT problems. It'd be too hard for, let's say test prep companies sent in sent in people to memorize memorize questions i don't think they could do it well enough yeah especially for like reading copper games yeah i mean i think there are places where people have like written down the topics of reading comp stuff from all the past things so you could conceivably go out and like read about all these topics but that you know you could also just read the economist cover to cover every week but like it's basically a lot of your effort will be waste if you're doing it purely to target the LSAT and you'd be better off like focusing on the skills rather than like learning the topics or the game types. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think enough people would ever even try to do this to make an impact. And I also don't think their results would be that fruitful in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't make that much of a difference. I I mentioned this because it it did happen with, I, I believe the GRE and the GMAT too, where people, test prep companies would go in and harvest all the questions and ask everybody what happened. And because they were using a constant pool of questions, this reuse did occur and was noticeable. But on the LSAT, I think it's just, it's, it's too complex. There's too much to potentially put together there. Did uh, that actually help people with the GR and the GMAT or is it just the thing test prep companies did, but it didn't really uh, change anything? 
That's a great question. I actually don't know whether whether it helps people. I know that yeah, I saw the article that it was be that it was being done, and then of course some prep company could claim that we hold the secrets. We have all the unreleased questions, and we'll give them to you as, as if you're our student, which is probably a copyright issue of one form or another, aside from violating their privacy. But yeah, I, I don't imagine it would have that much of an impact, just because the the stuff being tested is always the same. Yeah. Exactly. Like when, when you're using prep materials, you always got to think like, is this important or was this just like something that a prep company could do? And so they're doing it, but it doesn't actually matter. That's a great question. Yeah. What are they doing that's easy for them to do versus what is useful for you, the student at the end of the yeah. day? And I think that focusing so much on like, you know, there was this game, a circle game. Like, yeah, it's nice to know that there it was a circle game that might come up again, but either way, you should be ready for circle games. Oh, right. Okay. There is one case where it may matter about repetition. Uh, Elsec actually said they'd get back to me on this, but I haven't heard from them yet. Uh, they might have just, you know, it was supposed to be this week, so I may hear a bit later and I'll update in the show notes if I hear something. But I was led to understand that on like some recent tests, uh, sometimes accommodated test takers and possibly some others, like if there was a snow day or something, will have the test like a few days later. This is not the norm. I believe like most accommodated test takers are on the same day, but I'm guessing, you know, there might be like some, if an accommodation demanded like enough special arrangements that it just wasn't practical, it might happen later. And that these are sometimes done with the same test as the people that, you know, just took the test like three days earlier. Um, and so where this could be an issue is if people are talking about the test online and then someone sees like, that specific test being discussed that they're taking in three days, that would provide an advantage. Whereas, you know, if you knew what the test was like in October, 2008, or I'll say December, 2008, cause I don't know if it was an October test back then or not. Um, no, not December, sorry, February, 2008, the one that wasn't disclosed. If you knew what that test was, that doesn't necessarily help you now because that's not necessarily the test you're going to get. But if there's like, one test that people just took and hasn't been released yet and then you're taking it a few days later for snowstorm or accommodations reasons in that case there is an issue with reuse um that i'm hoping lsac will you know avoid having to do later that if there is like reuse that they don't have to do it immediately after the test because you do see a lot of info online like right after the test is up and i think there's an issue there I, I agree. I do. I do think that's an issue as well. And I, I have come across things talking about that online. So it does strike me as problematic if it were too easy. That's like putting the information is circulating online in the immediate aftermath. And so it's right in front of you. If someone goes on a message board, if they're taking the LSAT, of course, it's natural. They would do it right before their testing. If they see it right in front of them and they know it's going to be the exact same test form, you know, if I were the accommodated test taker, I'd want to gather all the information I could. And of course, people aren't supposed to talk about it online, but I think there's just too much activity for LSAC to ultimately control everything that goes on. Yeah. So yeah, I would hope they would use a different exam instead. Yeah, I hope that's going to happen in the future. I'll just use this to like talk to anyone who's listening to this and is like active on LSAT forms that uh, like, well, generally the policy that like LSAC tolerates people discussing the subjects of questions so that you can identify the experimental so you can know like, oh, okay, that third section that I did that I did badly on, that was experimental, it didn't count, I can relax now. Um, that's why online discussion is tolerated and to that extent, because like, you know, you can't just stop all of it, it's really hard. But I'm, I'm a moderator on Reddit's LSAT forum. So I generally try and keep topics like just to that. And then I just want to say that like, there's going to be a natural temptation to talk about specific questions, either in private messages or publicly but just please don't and report it if you see it because there may be some people taking that same test a few days later uh, for reasons of delay or accommodation or whatever other reason uh, logistical issue that happened so basically if you're discussing it afterwards in two specific terms you might be helping someone else get uh, unfair leg up on the test and so i would ask that like you not do it and report it if you see it and this is, you know, nothing against the people who are taking the test on a later day. That's outside of their control, whether it's the same test or not. But people often ask, like, well, why does it matter if we discuss the questions? This is why it matters if you discuss the questions. And it's like, it's for your benefit, not 
Uh, it's not just some rule. Yeah, you're actually helping your competition if you post the details of the exam you took for someone who could be taking it a few days later. It's funny, I'm yep. reminded of back in high school when my like, high school Spanish teacher would use the exact same exam for first period students and ninth period students. And so if you were in ninth period, you just talked to your friends in first period and you learned exactly <laughs> which Spanish vocab they were going to be testing. And so, yeah, competition, your competition, you could help one another. And the difference here is that there's no, there's no quid pro quo. You're not getting anything back by helping them. You're just giving them a leg up. And that's ultimately hurting your own admission chances and, of course, compromising the integrity of the test. And so better to keep it general and vague. Yeah. Um, oh, this does lead into one more topic uh, relating to the digital LSAT of, like, you know, why is there even a score release delay in the first place? Because, like, on a digital test, you would think that once it's digital, well, they just they know all the ones you get right or wrong. So why can't they just give you a score right then and there? Yeah, that is, that is a good question, and it comes down again to LSAC's level of devotion to making sure everything is good about a test form. So you want they still want to engage in their score equating test equating process. They want to make sure that this LSAT administered is the same as all previous ones that people performed similarly, that like a, someone with a true score of 170 is still getting a 170 on this score. So they're still doing that equating process. And for the July LSAT in particular, like we discussed earlier, they actually want to test out if the digital and paper ones line up in terms of the results being valid. So mm -hmm. we're still going to have the three-week wait regardless. Yeah, but even past the July one, they're still intending to have a wait uh, for the reasons you say, that like they've got to do some behind-the-scenes work to make sure that everything they thought was true is true and the curve is right and there's been no cheating and all that stuff. Um, what I do wish they would do, and I don't see any reason that they couldn't do this, so maybe you can let me know if there's something I'm missing here. I think they should give people like a estimated raw score. So say there's like, you know, 100 questions on the L side, they could say like, we think your raw score is 83. Doesn't mean it is. Maybe there was like, you know, some question that'll be thrown out later and uh, it'll change it. And, you know, who knows what the curve is? They may not even disclose that. Oh, Actually, I think I figured out why they couldn't do this because some it, it, is the curve like secret material on a test. Like if an undisclosed test, like they don't normally disclose the curve. Uh, does that significant? That's a great question. I don't I don't see why it would be secret. The one thing I can think of is that let's say you were trying to figure out which test their their pattern for reusing exams. If you saw that one exam had a minus twelve wrong to get one seventy. And then the same exam two years ago at 12 wrong to get a 170, that could help people match it up. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't see any impact on the integrity. I don't see why they couldn't give you the estimated raw score conversion, why they couldn't give you your breakdown by section. I don't even see why they couldn't give you an entire breakdown of every question you got right and wrong, just with all the questions themselves removed. Potentially. I am wondering now. Like someone, if, if we did have all the estimated raw scores out, someone would like make a curve and figure out the test reuse pattern. Like there's, someone would do it. There's no way that like, that someone wouldn't. And now I guess I'm having to think from LSAC's perspective, like, cause you may have heard like when people like, I don't know, researchers release like a anonymized data set from some website and they're like, well, now people can use it for research. And within like two hours, somebody has figured out the identity of everybody in the data set because what you thought was like <laughs> trivial information turned out to be highly significant so now i'm thinking from lsac's perspective where they know everyone's pouring over this information like what could they release that wouldn't be used in a way to figure out score uh release patterns and i'm actually not sure like maybe an estimated scaled score instead of an estimated raw score which you know could have a higher swing um but say like we think you got about a 164 and you know maybe it'll be a 160 maybe it'll be a 167 i, I don't think it has that much of a swing but you know just estimated it's not certain that would really help people feel less anxious and know whether to retake and what how to apply and so on and you'd get your real score back in three weeks anyway i'm just wondering if that would provide any information i don't see how that possibly could provide any information yeah. the other thing is they could just tell people yeah you just tell people you got this many wrong and this many right well no but that could provide information because if you found out that like here's how you piece it together 
if you found out that like an estimated raw score on a release test generally did match the real raw score, then that would, uh, and then if people also had their estimated raw scores and then they got their real scaled score, that would help you construct a curve. And then once you had the curve constructed, that might help you determine test reuse cycles. Yeah, it could, it could. I guess it's a question of how much the the curves fluctuate. Like let's say we move towards a world where LSAC is consistently doing either minus 10 or minus 11 for a 170. If they if, oh. they, if they were able to limit that band more to just be, always be either minus 10 or minus 11, hypothetically, then I think that would mask the data enough where they'd be able to do it. Yeah. By the way, I've heard anyone who isn't like super into LSAT world we should have explained what like a curve and a minus means i meant to do that earlier but basically on some tests if you have like uh 85 it'll be a point or two higher than on some other tests and if you say like minus 11 that means what's that to get a 170 yeah it's like you can miss this you can miss 11 questions and you get a 170 and that's what they it's like the standard reference for a curve so that's what people are talking about when they say that yeah, yeah, but um, the, the curves, they also don't fluctuate as much as they used to. I remember, like, years back, you could have, like, minus 14. That yeah. sort of thing isn't so common anymore. Yeah, but I am i can't see how a estimated scaled score would give away anything, though, because all you're going to get is estimated scaled score and then real scaled score afterwards. So if I were in LSAC, I would be thinking about, like, how could I help students without revealing too much information and then try and find something? I think estimated, um, sorry, estimated scaled score would be a good way of doing that. And also you could probably tell them what the experimental was because like you discuss it online anyway. Well, actually ugh, that might, <laughs> that might provide too much info. Sorry. We're like, we're tying ourselves up in knots here. Cause like this is a genuinely hard problem to think about until you actually like release it out and see what people do with it. But basically I hope LSAC can find a way to give you like something instant on, you know, not in July, that's not what they're doing, but on like future digital test dates to like shorten the cycle where you don't get your official score back, but you get something that tells you like, okay, I didn't get a 145 instead of a 160 like I'm expecting to get, you know, so you can relax for three weeks. Yeah, that would be really nice. And they just have to put in big, bold letters. This is just an estimated score, not your actual, because I could imagine a bunch of people just saying, oh, I got a 170 and be done with it. And then if it comes back a few points lower, they're going to complain to LSAC. And so maybe LSAC has just wanted to avoid that heading. But if they if they educated people enough about the fact that this is just estimated, not real, then I think it would help people a lot. Yeah. It'd be really nice to do, because otherwise people are just trying to like not think about it actively for three weeks, which of course is like, don't think of an elephant. Of course you do. So just to tie things off, is there anything people should be doing like today to prepare for the digital LSAT? Today, I'd say consider getting a tablet. Start getting used to not doing work on the page. If you're taking digital LSAT, if you're taking it in July or moving forward, try to get used to doing everything on a separate sheet of paper. I think that's the number one biggest recommendation I have right now. Except if you are taking it July and let's, you know, most of the time we had to educate people to stop using scrap paper and start using the page itself, you might have a paper LSAT in July. So uh, you, I guess you kind of got to practice both styles, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like people often ask, like, is it bad to like use more than one prep method? Like, nope. And I think flexibility in how you approach stuff is very helpful. So uh, just, I guess, keep in mind when you're taking it, if it's July, you're going to have to do both methods. So yeah, be ready for anything. Yeah, we'll we'll have some more info as this gets closer, I think, um, and people actually start practicing this. We'll have some like student anecdotes where they say like, "Oh, I started doing this and I ran into this issue." Um, for now, we're just sort of guessing based on the public materials. So, uh, but basically, keep this in mind if you're studying for some time July or later, uh, because it will be relevant on test day. Yeah, definitely. Just start thinking about it now. We've engaged in a lot of speculation today, but as more tools and resources come out related to this and we get to test it out, we'll, I'm sure we'll have more recommendations for you and we'll probably do another episode or two on it at some point. All right. Shall we call this uh, a wrap now? Yeah, let's, let's call it. What's the best way for students to reach you, Graham? 
So the best way to actually the best way to reach me is probably on Instagram or Reddit. On Instagram, I'm Graham G R A E M E underscore Blake, and uh, on Reddit, it's the LSAT form LSAT or R LSAT. But my site is lsathacks.com. And again, I'm Steve Schwartz over at the LSAT blog. Best way to reach me is via email, lsatunplugged at gmail.com. Also very active on YouTube, youtube.com slash lsatblog. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Take care.